Micah chapter 5, verse 2, through verse 5a in the English Bible. Just a note, if you are interested in Hebrew um, and Hebrew studies, the Hebrews start this chapter at verse 2. So this chapter, so what we're reading is chapter 5, verse 2 is chapter 5, verse 1, and it's all very confusing in Hebrew Bible. So if you're ever talking to a Hebrew person and you quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and tell them that verse, they're going to think you mean verse verse 3 to us. Um, just, that's neither here nor there. Fun fact for you. Let's look at this passage. We're going to look at some very short verses, a very short segment, but a very profound one. Let's read chapter 2, verses, I mean, chapter 5, verses 2 through 5a. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So I want to remind you, as you look at Old Testament prophecies, the prophets stood with a vision and a picture of a mountain peak, right? And they saw a whole range. They saw a mountain range. And they might see the first mountain close, and they might see the peak of the second mountain But they're looking at a mountain range from a distance. And there's a mountain they're standing on at the time period. For example, Micah's mountain that he's standing on, what he sees all around him, is Assyria is pressing in from the north. The northern tribes have been wiped out. The ten tribes of Israel have been wiped out. And all that's left is Judah and Levi, the two tribes that are in the south. And Assyria has surrounded all of Judah. They have the south. They've got Egypt pressing in from the south and, is, and in combination with Assyria. They've got Assyria standing in the north. And Micah can see this destruction all around him and this impending doom in a time of prosperity and in a time when things are uh, falling apart. You can just push the little dark button. There's a little button there that just has a square. There you go. That works. You're doing great. You're doing great. So the, uh, he's got Assyria all around him, and everything is, seems dark. Everything seems like it's going to fail. right? So he, uh, he is looking around him, and he's standing on that mountain peak, and he sees in the future another mountain peak when the Messiah will come. 
And we know that he knows this to be the Messiah because of the things he says. A ruler, a shepherd, who will be peace to people, who will bring Sabbath peace, rest to everyone, who will bring salvation. This is the guy that's coming, and he can see it, and he's going, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And it blurs with another mountain peak that's further beyond. That mountain peak that we would call the second coming of Christ. right? That's just beyond the second mountain peak. He can see this king who's going to come and Israel's going to be restored and reunited. And I bring that up because today we're going to focus on that one that he can see. The virgin birth, Jesus Christ coming, the first coming of Jesus Christ, our salvation. But I don't want you to miss the fact that there is hope beyond that. Even beyond that, there's hope. That there is hope for the second coming of Christ as well. So as we describe uh, this, this passage, remember that Romans 11 still exists. Where it says that for a time, the Jews did not hear from the Lord or or they had their there was a partial hardening on them and one day that will be lifted and they will return and we see that there in verse 3 right so i just i just want you to have that in the back pocket kind of as we read and you'll find out why as we go but i want you to keep that in the back pocket that that this prophecy is a dual prophecy it's got multiple layers to it and so as we read together here uh, let's dive right in. Verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Let's start there, right? Remember when we read this at the beginning, when the wise men come to Herod and they ask him, where is the baby to be born? Where's the king that's supposed to be born? And immediately the scribes and Pharisees know the answer. Bethlehem. They're like, oh yeah, that's supposed to happen in Bethlehem. But none of them are there. None of them notice. None of them catch on. None of them see it. And why? Why? And we've talked about this a dozen times in the past. They were so caught up with the things of the world that they missed the coming of their king. We've talked about this. They're so caught up in their own riches and their own place and their own place in the world and battling the Romans and standing up against, against tyranny and being the Jewish monarchs. And they're so caught up in that that they missed the coming of the king. And so they come to, to, to Herod and they ask the question. Now, I just want you real quick, go over, it's in your bulletin, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 12, and look at verse 6, where they respond to him. Where is the, where is the Christ to be born? And then in verse 6, it says, And you, Bethlehem, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For, you, for from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. They almost get the verse right. But did you notice? They didn't quite get it right. They didn't quite quote it the same way that it is in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. They... They almost get it perfect, but they, they get it. Bethlehem, the, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. In Micah chapter 2, there's a very clear statement. In, 
but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Micah says, you are too small. They say, in the land of Judah, are by no means least. So their response is to grab hold of David's city and go, no, no, you matter. You matter. And why would they do that? Because they're kings. Because Herod is a king. And and Bethlehem is where kings are supposed to come from, where David's supposed to come from, where the king David was. And, and they're clinging to this history of kingship. And kingship and Herod saying, I'm the king. And the Pharisees are going, we rule religious. We, we're the religious elite. And the scribes are saying, we're the religious in charge. And here we have in Micah chapter 2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be, na- to be among the clans of Judah. The idea is, is they're not even on the map. You look at a map and they're not even put on there. There's not even a dot. They're an invisible town. They've got one stoplight. Maybe a Bucky's. Right? That's what they've got. They've got nothing. You, you pass through the city and it's empty. It's a small little insignificant town. That's what Micah is driving at. And, and so we, we get our first principle here. Right? One of our first principles is that God loves to use small, insignificant things to make His name great. One of our first principles is that God loves to use small and insignificant things to make His name great. He loves to use small things. Think about what Paul says. He uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Think about all the disciples that he calls. None of them are of great pedigree. None of them are incredible leaders. In fact, most of them are kind of vagabond. You wouldn't pick them. If you were picking an all-star team for Jesus, they wouldn't have been on it. I mean, think about it. Think about the stories you know. Peter, who is either so good with a sword or so bad with a sword that he can't actually kill a guy, he just chops his ear off when he's angry. And Jesus has to rebuke him and go, seriously, we've been walking together for three years. You still don't know that this is not how it works? The two, oh, the two, the sons of thunder, the mighty sons of thunder who walk over the hill to Samaria and they come up over the hill. That's James and John. And they come up over the hill. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? That walking with Jesus and they look at Jesus. They see Samaria and they go, now do we call down fire from heaven to destroy them? This is shortly after Jesus has already saved multiple people who were Samaritans. And they don't get it. God chooses to use these men to build what we know as the church. This massive religious system that, in a good way, has covered the globe. He used people from places like Brazoria. He uses small and insignificant things. A virgin. 
a stable. And why? Why? It's so that the people who ran the inn couldn't be like, look at, look at me. They, it's my inn. Check it out. It's my, he came to an inn. People who ran inns, you know, you know what would have happened if Jesus was born in an inn? Hotels would have halos over the top of them. Because we're people and we glorify ourselves first. Right? They'd have, they'd have, every hotel would have a halo on top of it and be like, this is where the Messiah was born. Right? He was born in a hotel. Right? You'd have commercials on TV advertising inns as the choice place of God. Yet, Jesus is born in a stable. Why? Because that's embarrassing. If somebody was like, he was born in my stable. You know, the first question you'd ask, why wasn't he born in your house? That'd be the first question you'd ask. You put him with a donkey? You put the king of glory where the donkey eats? No, Jesus delights in the small things and the little places and he brings kingship out of the littlest space just think about it a virgin a carpenter an, a stable nothing majestic nothing majestic in bethlehem now there's two ways to take the the reference to bethlehem here one is the way herod and the and the pharisees do right this is the king David's city. This is David's city. He's born in Bethlehem. But that misses the point. That misses the point. To take it that way misses the point. The point is right following Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You are too little. You are too small. You are tiny. You are insignificant. If you were to say that God chose Bethlehem because Bethlehem is great. You'd be missing the point. He chose Bethlehem precisely because Bethlehem is not great. Precisely because Bethlehem is not some massive city. He chose you precisely because he can do great things with you. He can do amazing things with you. And he has to do them. I can't do them. He has to do them in me. I can't do the things that are in my heart and in my head to do for the Lord because He has to do them in me. He chose insignificant, small Bethlehem because it's small. Not because it's David's city. It's because it's small and insignificant. Just like this place we live. I love this sermon. Every year I get to give this sermon. This is Brazoria. This is it. Small town, two stoplights. I guess we got three. This is it. Everybody knows each other. I'm sure you could find a stable somewhere in town. There's one down the street from me. I live in city limits and there's a stable with horses in it. I used to joke that I could walk around my neighborhood and there's a veritable zoo. There are goats. There are donkeys. There are horses, chickens galore. One guy even used to have peacocks. Right? This is a crazy, small place to live. And yet it's beautiful. And why is it beautiful? It's not beautiful because of it itself. It's beautiful because this is the kind of place that God likes to show up. God likes to show up. 
And he does it quietly. That's why Herod and all of those other people didn't, didn't think to go. Because it's too small. It's too small. You are too little to be among the clans of Judah. And then look at what he says. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, put yourself in Micah's shoes. I just want you to hear the boldness of this proclamation. This is the boldness of the proclamation. He's surrounded by Assyria. Assyria is pressing in on all sides. The king is nervous and scared and They've got their Assyria sending threats into the people, and he is being pressed in on around all sides. And Micah has the nerve to say this: "From you shall come a come. I'm sorry. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel." Notice he doesn't say king. He says ruler or, or one who is to rule. This is a verb. It's the word moshal, moshal, right? It's not the word melech, which is king. It's the word moshal, which is rules. One who is in charge and rules. Micah's thinking beyond kingship. This is someone who rules over everything. It, the emphasis here is on the function. He's going to rule Israel whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. He proclaims that there's going to be a ruler who is going to be king over everything in the face of an invading army that is, that is pressing in on all sides to the people of Israel. That takes a lot of nerve. Oh, it takes a lot of nerve to stand and look at the governing authorities and go, you are under my God takes a lot of nerve to look at the government when they do wicked things and go, you are under the rule of my Lord. And Micah be pressed in from all sides, wondering if tomorrow is going to be the day that everything in his country falls apart. Wondering if everything is going to just fall apart tomorrow. He gets pressed in on all sides and he says, there is a ruler who's coming from God for him. Note that too. Note what he says about this ruler. So first we see him proclaiming Jesus as ruler, not simply king. He does that on purpose. Because there are, there are thousands of kings in the world. But Micah wants you to understand there's one who rules. There's one who rules. 
There's thousands of kings. There's kings come and go. Presidents come and go. Good, bad, wicked, indifferent. They come and go. But there's one ruler, one Lord, one master. He is God Almighty. And no one tells him what to do. Who is like the Lord? There's none like him. No one tells him what to do or asks him, what have you done? He answers to none, and he is ruler over all. So we see him say here that there is one who will come forth for me. For me. Who come forth for me. One who is to be ruler in Israel. Who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This has always been the plan. This, this is not plan B. God did not make a mistake and then come back and fix it with Jesus. This has always been the plan. Jesus has always been the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the snake. He has always been the greater light to govern the day whose reflections will govern the night. He has always been. He will always be. He has been here from the beginning. His spirit is that which brings substance to the deep, which brings, makes the deep the waters in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. He is the one who brings everything into existence, and he has always been and will always be. This is not plan B. This is God's plan from the beginning. He was coming. He is coming. He has come. He is here. Jesus was always, is, and will always be. Then he says here, he's been coming. So first we see that he's a ruler. This is the first thing that we see about Jesus. He's a ruler in charge of everything. No king can sustain, can stay his hand. No king Proclamation is out of his control. Let's just grab hold of that. There is no proclamation given by any king, ruler, or authority in our world that is somehow beyond God's hand or scope. No matter how wicked, no matter how unjust, no matter how evil, they are not beyond his hand. He is Lord over all things, even that which we don't like, and even that which he doesn't like. And the very fact that they exist, that wickedness exists, is mercy from his hand, because he is ruler over all things, and he is merciful to the wicked, even to me. So, First, he's ruler. Second, we have this uh, beautiful statement here. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. This is straight Romans 11. If you want to have fun looking at the second coming of Jesus Christ, look at this passage. Read it with Romans 11 and read Revelation. You've got this incredible picture of what's going to happen. That there will be a time when Israel is given up, is handed over for a time until the labor pains are over. And then it is born 
Right? We have this imagery of birth all throughout the scripture. In particular, in the New Testament, you have this imagery of birth that all of creation waits and groans for the revealing of the sons of Adam, the, the children of Jesus who get redeemed. All of creation is waiting as in childbirth, just laboring for it, waiting for the redemption of all waiting for God to restore. And then at the end of the book, in Revelation chapter 21, remember what it says? We translated it as finished, but how is it supposed to be translated? Behold, it is born. It is born. Just getting started. It's born. The end comes. Heaven and earth meet, and you have this beautiful picture of heaven, and it is born. Genomai, it is born. It has been born and we see this beautiful picture that one day one day it will be born and there's this incredible thing i'd love to talk more about this but this is uh, really for another mess there's so much in here but this is for another message but the the idea that all 10 tribe all 12 tribes of israel will be reunited all of them will be brought back the brothers will come back the brothers will return this is, a, like, this is almost a triple prophecy, right? Because Micah is also seeing there will come a day when the exile is over and Israel returns to the land. That happens. That happens. In fact, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible ends in Ezra and Nehemiah with all the tribes back in Israel awaiting the presence of the Lord. The walls have been rebuilt and they read the law out loud for the first time. In a long time. And there's this huge worship service at the end of the Hebrew Bible. That's the last two books in the Hebrew Bible. They arrange them differently in, in the Jewish Bible. And right after that, put Matthew. In walks the king. Right? The temple is rebuilt and the king, David's seed, Jesus Christ is born. And the Spirit of God re-enters. It's beautiful. It's powerful. And that's what he's looking at. He's looking at that. And he's looking at the second coming, which we see in Revelation, the, four, the 12 tribes of, of Israel regathered, and the people, the multitude, the myriad upon myriad, nations gathered before the throne, all singing the same song in different tongues, praising the Lord. And we see this all at the end. And Where's our hope? Our hope is there. Our hope is there. We know it's coming. And we can say with certainty that he has done this and he is doing it. Verse 4, we see something more about our king. So first, he comes, he's a ruler. Second, he's a ruler and he will, he will restore all things. Third, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh, his God. So he says he will stand. Note two things. He's going to stand. This isn't he will stand. This isn't passive. He's not sitting and waiting. He's actively standing and moving. If anybody, if you ever doubt that God is moving, just remember this verse. That when Jesus comes, he comes to stand. He comes to stand for you. To stand with you. To walk with you. These are the images we have of Jesus. And what are we encouraged to do in the book of Ephesians? 
If you've read through the book, you see there's three verbs that stand out. Sit, walk, stand with Jesus. We are to sit at his feet while he works. We are to walk with him that he works in us. We are to stand in his power and find his strength inside us. This is, this is Jesus stands with us. He stands for us. He is mighty and majestic. He is not passive. So when you look around at the world and you're thinking everything's falling apart, remember that Jesus is not passive. He is standing even though it looks like there's nothing happening. He is standing and he will shepherd his people. This is the guarantee of the stand, right? We get fed. This word shepherd is the idea of feed. He's going to feed, pasture, shepherd his people. He's going to take them. He's going to be their shepherd. This is beautiful, right? He's a ruler and he's a shepherd. This automatically ties him to David and Bethlehem and that great prophecy that there will be a king who will sit on the throne of David forever. And so we see this incredible picture and he's shepherding them. He's feeding his people. He's providing for his people. It is not a mistake that God had Jesus born in the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. The house of bread. And then Ephratha. Ephratha, that, which is just another name. It's another ancient name for that area, for that city. Ephratha, that means fruitful. This is a, a land where God prophesies the abundance of sustenance coming from. Bethlehem, the house of bread. Out of the house of bread will come a ruler who will stand and who will shepherd his people. He will feed them. Indeed, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we have the word of God dwelling and living inside us. Christians have life where everyone else is walking dead. Christians have life within us. And how does he do this? In the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of Yahweh. I'm emphasizing that Lord there, when you see it in all caps in your Bible, is Yahweh. That's the tetragrammaton. I'm emphasizing that for a reason. The, the majesty of that name is that it is the self-sufficient one. When Moses says, God, whom shall I say sent me to them? God says, I am, I am. In fact, it's actually improper grammar. And he says, I be. I simply exist. I am the self-existent one, the one by whom you draw your breath. There's some speculation that this is just breathing. Moses said, who do you say, who should I say sent me? And God in Exodus chapter three just breathes. And he hears the name of God, the breath of God, the very breath that animated Adam's lungs when God took Adam's form and blew into his nostrils to give him life, the very animating source of life that in 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, is the scripture, is God breathed. 
to give us life is profitable for, for reproof, correction, training, and righteousness that the man of God might be equipped for every good work. This is life giving. This is the power with which Jesus shepherds us. This is what lives inside you. This is what moves inside you, what gives you life. This is, this is it. This is what we got. Life itself as he shepherds us in the strength of that and in the majesty of that. So he's a ruler. He will set all things right. He will feed his people. And then finally, and they, his people, will dwell secure. For now, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Take note, God doesn't just claim one small city. He doesn't claim one parcel of land. He doesn't say, all right, world, you get to have everything else. I get this little parcel over here. He doesn't say, I want the mountain range on northern Israel. You guys can have everything else. That's the prettiest part. He doesn't say that. God didn't make a summer home for himself. And decide that's where he's going to reside and you have to come travel to him to see him. No. To the ends of the earth. The other reason God doesn't call this ruler a king but says he rules is because it's to the end of It's everything. It's everything. All of it's his. He's so far beyond the idea of a king. He is he's ruler. Everything is his. To the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. Oh, I know that our politicians think that they rule. They don't. I know that there are kings who think that they're in charge and that they own plots of land. They don't. I know there are men like me who think I own this plot of land. I don't. It's his to the ends of the earth. And we dwell secure because it's his. Because it's all his. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it belongs to him. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord and everything in it belongs to him. That is tremendous blessing for us. Because when someone tries to take something from you, it's not yours anyway. And you know the one who owns it. You can talk directly to its owner. The earth is Lord's and everything in it belongs to him. His kingdom is from the ends of the earth. Every part, every corner, every, every cranny. There is no place where darkness can hide from him. He is the light and everything is exposed to him. It is all his. And we dwell secure because we have come to the light like we read two weeks ago. We have come to the light and the light has shone on us of people who were in great darkness, who were dwelling in darkness by our own choice. And Jesus comes and shows up as the light and gives us life and exposes us and takes the entire earth and goes, it's mine. And we dwell secure because our master owns everything. 
This is what Richard Wormbrand gets at in his books when he says, when he talks about being tortured for Christ and how they can't take anything from him. Can't take anything from him because they don't have anything that they can take. There's nothing they can own. Jesus owns everything anyway, including my circumstance and my struggles. Richard Wormbrand, tortured for Christ for 13 years, is considered to be one of the most happiest men on the planet. People would meet him and go, I've never met anyone so happy. Tortured in prison for 13 years. And he's the happiest man on the planet to most people. This is, that's the power of Christ. That's the power, that same power, by the way, I know you don't think it does. I know you don't think it does because I don't think it does in me. That's the same power that lives in you. That's the same peace that Paul talks about, that peace that surpasses all understanding. That's the same contentment that Paul says that no matter if I'm weak or healthy, if I'm poor or rich, if I'm hungry or well-fed, if I'm in chains or I'm free, I am content in Jesus Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's that same power that lives in you. And I know you don't think it does. I know that in the back of your mind, you're just like me. At least I hope you're just like me. And I'm not just confessing my own weakness. And everybody else in the room is like, I got this. No, but like, just like me, I know that you think in the back of your mind, Lord, I really love you. I want to serve you. Please don't put me in prison. (laughs) I don't know if I can make it. Yet, you can why do I know you can? Because it says so right here. It says so all through Scripture. You dwell secure. Remember, cling to what the psalmist says. Cling to what the psalmist says. That he takes me from the miry pit and puts me on a rock. It does not say he eliminates the pit and the storms. Says he places you above them. He puts you above them. So likewise, we dwell secure, and he is great to the ends of the earth. And then, verse 5 He shall be their peace. Not he shall bring them a peace, not he shall give them peace. He shall be their peace. Oh, how often I forget this one. How often I get nervous and forget that my peace is derived from knowing and loving Jesus Christ. How often I try to find my peace everywhere else. When I'm nervous or facing anxiety or there's a big test or there's something going, there's something coming down the pipe that I know is going to be rough. How often I forget and I go, you know what? I know what to do. I know what to do. I'm going to put on some soft music. I'm going to, I'm going to relax. I'm going to lay down in this chair. I'm going to, I'm going to just rest. I'm going, to, I'm going to watch a movie. I'm going to watch a movie. That'll make me feel better. I'm going to watch a movie. Not, none of those start working. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to call my friends. I'm going to go out and do something relaxing. I'm going to go do something relaxing. That doesn't work. I'm going to go take a walk. I'm going to take a walk. I'm going to be by myself. That doesn't work. And then there's that moment when somebody looks at you and goes, Hey, what have you been reading in the Word today? And you go, That's where I'm supposed to go. That's what... Then you open it and you read one word and you're like, ah, you know what I'm talking about? This is 
this so often. He shall be their peace. Not he shall bring them a peace. Not he shall give them a little bit. He is our peace. When everything's falling down, when everything in the world is crashing down around us, we have peace in Jesus. You want to feel peace? You want to feel free from anxiousness, anxiety? You want to deal with those things? Yes, there's an appropriate way to handle those things, just naturally too. But when you layer over the power of God on top of it, and you go, Jesus is my peace, and you're pursuing Him and pressing hard into Him, this, He is your peace. Test Him in this and see if He does not pour out a blessing. Test Him in it. Test Him, see if He doesn't pour out a blessing. If He doesn't heap it on your heads because of His greatness and goodness. And his love for you. Oh, the Lamb of God who has come into the world has given us life. We have only to trust him. We have only to trust him.